We need to be willing to break our own paradigm in a uh, positive way to disrupt our own way of doing business. We've sold a lot of passes in the Northwest. Crystal, which is the, uh, the only mountain that we own in the region, it's not enough to serve all those people if they decide to show up on a powder day in uh, Crystal. And so we need a way to make sure that we deal with that. So going forward, instead of a reservation system, we change the product configuration to create a, a more limited approach to the base pass of visitors to uh, to Crystal. And I think it's working because we've I've received a bunch of letters that say, I hate you for restricting my icon pass. And I love you for making sure that my experience is going to be a good one. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Very excited to bring you today's conversation with the man in charge of Altera and the Icon Pass. First, remember to subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. The podcast is just a small part of the storm. They'll release their Epic Pass suite yesterday, and I broke that down in detail. Tons of season pass coverage and much more in the Storm Skiing newsletter. For more frequent updates, you can also follow along on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. First, quick word about my partners, Mountain Gazette and Helly Hansen. You all know conditions in the Northeast can be unpredictable. And if you ski every week, like my family does, you need to be prepared for anything, especially this year when your car is your base lodge. That's why we are rocking Heli Hansen gear from head to toe to keep us warm and dry no matter what Mother Nature throws at us. Heli Hansen gear is ready for anything because professionals who brave the world's harshest environments have been integral to the development of the brand's gear. This season, I'm gearing up in the Alpha Leafa Loft jacket. And the difference between this and other ski jackets is obvious the moment you put it on. This thing is decked out with a Heli Tech waterproof windproof and breathable outer layer. It is lightweight and incredibly warm, even on the coldest days. There was a long stretch this winter where every single day I went out, it was below 10 degrees. And guess what? I never got cold, for real. This Heli Hansen gear is legit. Plus the life pocket, which stays two times warmer than a normal ski jacket pocket, keeps my phone from dying while I'm on the mountain all day long. If you want to get yourself new gear or know someone who needs to refresh their kit, visit the Heli Hansen in Boston or Burlington, Vermont, and mention this Storm Skiing Podcast ad to get 18.77% off. Why 18.77%? Because that's the year they were founded. That's right, more than 140 years ago. The Storm Skiing Podcast is also brought to you in part by Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a biannual, large format print title celebrating mountain culture. The crew is wrapping up work on issue 195 and it is loaded. We've got a spring skiing gallery by legendary Alta-based photographer Lee Cohen, a Q&A with New Hampshire governor and Waterville Valley owner Chris Sununu, an exclusive look at the first chapter of Home Waters, the spiritual sequel to Norman McLean's A River Runs Through It, written by his son John a profile of Mountaineer Arlene Bloom, written by Ingrid Backstrom, and the return of the jaded local who comes over from Powder Magazine. And that's just the start. This thing will be loaded with photos and stories from mountain towns around the country. Look, we told you last time that issue 194 would sell out, and it did. Demand for the magazine is high. 
we expect this next issue to sell out as well. Don't miss out. Head over to mountaingazette.com and enter code GOHIRE10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions. Use code EASTCOAST, all one word, for 10% off everything else, including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. Starting Friday, March 26th, you can also get free shipping on those posters. Mountain Gazette, when in doubt, go higher. Episode 42, Rusty Gregory, CEO of Altera Mountain Company. Which pass do you have? Most of you have at least one multi-pass, if not two or three. These days, you almost have to have one. Day tickets are above $200 at the big mountains in the West, and the Icon and Epic Passes give you so much access for such a low price that it's almost impossible not to buy at least one. We're also used to this now that it's easy to forget how fast everything has changed. The Icon Pass is only in its third season, but it's already impossible to imagine lift surf skiing without it. There was nothing inevitable about the Icon Pass forming. It's a very different animal from the Epic Pass, which mostly serves Vale's owned resorts. The Icon Pass is an incredible bit of teamwork. The combination of multiple ski companies with very distinct personalities coming together on one common product. It's all led by Altera, which in turn is led by Rusty Gregory. He was a big part of bringing this company together and a big part of the launch and evolution of the Icon Pass. And he's going to tell us all about all of that today. Let's go. My guest today is the CEO of Altera Mountain Company which owns 15 ski resorts throughout North America. With Altera's Icon Pass, skiers can access 44 destinations in North America, Europe, South America, Australia, New Zealand, and Japan. Prior to taking the top job at Altera in 2018, he spent two decades as head of Mammoth Mountain, California. Rusty Gregory is my guest. Rusty, so good to have you back on the program. Great to be with you, Stuart. Rusty, last time we spoke, we were all holed up in our homes, wondering what was going to happen next. We're all still processing the shutdown, and it wasn't at all clear that we would actually even have a 2020 to 21 ski season. Now that you've had some time to process everything, how are you feeling personally, and how are you feeling about the future of Altera? Well, I feel personally uh, quite good that we've uh, all gotten to the point that we're at now. And with respect to the ski industry, really very proud, actually, of the industry in the U.S. and, as best I can tell, North America in general to... Uh, to watch how well we've uh, adapted to impossible circumstances that have been facing the world. And as an industry figured out how to sufficiently mitigate the risk of, uh, of contagion and uh, for the most part, keep our resorts open. I think that's given people a, a much needed respite getting out in nature and the outdoors. And uh, so uh, it's been quite a ride getting here and uh, still a little unclear of all the things we're facing going ahead, but I think uh, it's good to be where we are right now and could have been much, much worse. Yeah, it's interesting. Out here on the East Coast, we're starting to have some ski area shutdowns and we haven't had a great winter. It hasn't been a terrible winter. We had a good six weeks or so. But what feels really good is as these ski areas are shutting down, they're doing it on their own terms. It's not because of the government. It's not because of, of COVID. It's not because of any uh, anyone's telling them to, they're doing it on their own terms this year. Yeah, it's, it's uh, listen, regulation and the government and all that was needed in, in my view, but it, uh, now I think we all have a better understanding of the risks and uh, have hit our stride. So it's great to see resorts operating based on the demand from the marketplace. And uh, that's, uh, that's a nice feeling. And you did have one shutdown, Rusty, Blue Mountain in Ontario. 
was shut down for six or eight weeks. I don't know the exact number. But that mountain I see is back up and running and intends to stay open until May. Talk a little bit about the challenges you faced at Blue Mountain and how you're getting through that. Yeah, Dan Skelton uh, is the president of Blue Mountain Force and a very experienced operator, grew up in the area and knows the neighborhood clearly. And it was so difficult on them. But there was a reason within the province that they uh, they took a conservative view and ski areas were, uh, were required to shut down. Very difficult on the staff, both seasonal and year-round. Fortunately, uh, the, uh, the Canadian, the Crown, had a, you know, a great uh, program for unemployment and uh, for people that helped out some. And we feel fortunate that, uh, that Blue was only, only shut down, I think, for about six weeks. And I can tell you there was a lot of happy people, starting with our employees and, uh, and our guests, when, uh, when, the, uh, when the government allowed it to uh, open back up. So looking good at the moment. And then going for May, I love the long season, Rusty, and a lot of the mountains you have in the Icon Pass go for the long season. So good on them for making the most of what they have. So I want to actually back up a little bit here because the last time we spoke, it was sort of at the high point of the crisis. And I think we just focused on what happened to the shutdown, what's going to happen next. But I'm really curious about your personal story. You sit now at the top of the skiing food chain, but you didn't actually grow up skiing. How and when did you discover the sport, Rusty? You know, I uh, grew up in Southern California, a suburb called Arcadia, uh, famous for not a lot, actually. uh, Santa Santa Anita Racetrack. One of the many suburbs in Los Angeles, and it's actually a very, uh, very nice area. And I played a lot of team sports, and I surfed. My family had a uh, a place back in uh, down in Balboa Island, so in Newport Beach, and I surfed and uh, played all sorts of team sports. And wintertime, all my surfing friends uh, went to Mammoth. I always wanted to go, and literally every weekend, I was involved in some sort of a team sport activity. Winter League baseball, basketball, et cetera. And I was never able to, uh, you know, say yes to one of the invitations. And when I went to college at the University of Washington, the mountains were very close and I eventually was able to go skiing. Um, in my, I played football there, so it was, we're allowed to go uh, skiing on a scholarship. So I was able to ski in my senior year and uh, four times at the local mountains up at Snoqualmie Pass and twice to Crystal. and one of the mountains that we, uh, one of the resorts we own now. So fell in love with it like I knew I would and eventually stopped by Mammoth for just a season to be a lift operator on to, you know, a more adult life and never left Mammoth and had the privilege of working for Dave McCoy for a lot of years. And somebody said, life is what happens when uh, you're making other plans. Maybe John, John Lennon. And I made a lot of plans, but I, uh, I just kind of lived the ski bum life and it's been a lot of fun. So you stop in to be a ski bum, you're bumping lifts. Well, I imagine you're bumping lifts, no high speed lifts at the time. So what made you stick with it? What was the appeal of Mammoth and just that culture and just being in that mountain town? You know, I, uh, for a host of reasons, really wasn't well suited for the office jobs that my college education said I, I should be good. <laughs> and being outside, being with people, being in the mountains, you know, the beach and the mountains, at least to me, have a very strong emotional connection. I think it's observable that that's that way for most people, whether you're a skier or a surfer or you're just hanging out at the beach in the mountains, kind of where we go to reconnect with ourselves, with our friends, kind of find the best version of ourselves. So that appealed to me and it was very much a uh, avocation, not a vocation for me. And I was a lift operator and then uh, I soon got a coveted year-round job, got transferred to lift maintenance and construction. 
and uh, then kind of worked my way up through a bunch of random jobs year round. Started a helicopter skiing company with my friends in, uh, gosh, 1979 or 80. And that we had for about 15 years and just uh, lived the life at every level. And, you know, you talk about, you know, I'm CEO of Altera. I'm, I'm, I'm on top of the food chain. I kind of feel like I'm on the bottom of the food chain, actually. And really? I've got farther and farther away from the ski slopes. And uh, uh, But working hard to stay connected to it, actually. So take us a little through that progression at Mammoth, Rusty, up until you took the CEO job in 1995. What kind of stuff were you doing on the mountain? You know, I, uh, I had lots of different jobs, uh, some of them simultaneously. I was a part-time ski instructor. Uh, I ran the Hello Ski Company uh, along with my wife and my much better skiing, uh, you know, more experienced friends on uh, Ski Patrol. And eventually was able to get, to get to be a good enough skier to guide. But I was, you know, I was also at various times a uh, snowblower and snow removal operator. Um, I became... Uh, head of human resources. My educational background was accounting and finance. I knew nothing about HR, but it was actually a very fundamental part of my learnings about uh, the importance of people in the ski industry, starting with your employees, kind of a cornerstone of Dave McCoy's philosophy. I did that, and then I was quickly promoted to, uh, although still overseeing overseeing, uh, HR, I was promoted to chief administrative officer, and then uh, in the uh, early 1990s, got very involved on the finance on the finance side of Mammoth, who was struggling with lack of snowmaking at the time and in uh, a really long extended drought period. And you know, principally involved in restructuring the company and bringing uh, Interwest in actually to provide an exit and liquidity for second generation McCoy family members who, uh, you know, wanted to get on with their dreams and, uh, and hopes and, and uh, wanted to sell their interest in the company. And, it, you know, it's all very accidental looking back on it. Once you became CEO, you did something really interesting. And you were really way ahead of the industry in this as far as passes go and dropping pass prices. We saw Vail drop its pass prices by 20% today. And I'll get your opinion on that later on in this call. But that was nothing compared to what you did at Mammoth in 1995. You dropped the price of a Mammoth Season Pass from $1,200 to $379. As a result, and this is all detailed in Chris Diamond's book, Ski Inc. 2020, which is my source for all these numbers. So correct me if anything's wrong. But as a result of that, passes shot from 2,000 passes sold to 36,000 passes sold in one season. To do the math, that's a jump of $2.4 million to $13.6 million. Take us back here, Rusty. Why did you make this change and how brazen of a move was this at the time? Well, uh, it was nutty, actually. Uh, a, and I have to give the credit to uh, to Mark Clausen, who was really my partner in crime in those days for a long time. He was uh, was CFO of Mammoth for as many years as I was CEO. And if I did anything right, it probably had everything to do with him. And he came up with a financial analysis around this. And uh, and it really, uh, really made a, a big difference when we did it. But it was the you know, in some ways, from a career standpoint, one of the most uh, kind of frightening times of my business career, because I had no idea if it was going to work. Neither did Mark, even though he had done the analysis. And it really changed the paradigm. Um, I think in Chris Diamond's book, it, it may have mentioned Mike Shirley at Bogus Basin, who had actually done this yeah. originally. 
And we did, were, yeah. I guess, the, the first ones to do it at a very large resort. And it was amazing. I mean, people that were big Mammoth fans, because the price was so low, and we were a big resort, and we had a lot of unused capacity, a lot of unused capacity, even on the weekends and holidays um, mm-hmm. most of the time. So it allowed us to fill up that capacity with people that bought a pass, came up much more frequently. And then one of the things we didn't count on is that they bought a, brought up their ticket-buying friends that mm-hmm. at the last minute, you know, got invited up and came. And so we just exploded, filled up our... Uh, filled up our unused capacity for the most part and, you know, uh, achieved record levels of volume, revenue, and profitability in the uh, following years. It was uh, it was pretty amazing. And as word got around, did you start to fill up that extra capacity? Yeah. It, you know, Mammoth, Mammoth was always busy, but it all depended on the weather. Part of this was we put snowmaking in. We also invested you know, close to $100 million over a seven or eight year period, uh, improving things in uh, in the late 1990s, early 2000s. And it, the word got around very quickly. And we didn't just sort of gradually ramp up. We, we stepped up a plateau and then ramped up from there. And the company went from um, visits that had been diminished because of the droughts that we had had in California but normalized around 600,000 skier visits to, uh, to up to in, uh, by 2006, we were at one point, uh, over 1.5 million visits. So we had a rapid period of growth and uh, increase in profitability, which allowed us to take down a lot of our old uh, fixed grips lifts and put in a whole new lift system uh, that really made a big difference in the quality of the experience for our increasing number of, uh, of guests we were hosting. So you're really an early innovator in this past war that we see going on right now. And I want to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But first, I want to pause. You mentioned Dave McCoy, the founder of Mammoth Mountain. And Dave actually passed away at the age of 104, just before the pandemic hit last year. Talk a little bit about Dave's legacy here, Rusty, and what it means to Mammoth and, in turn, what it means to Altera, which now owns Mammoth Mountain. Well, I'll tell you, it has everything to do with uh, with Mammoth and uh, and the culture of the ski resort and and really the uh, you know what at least in my version of what the soul of skiing is really and uh, you know which was based on the fact that we were all here for the mountains that's what called us you know the way we felt in the mountains the passion we had for it but at the end of the day the business of of skiing you know it was absolutely about the mountains but. We all had mountains of one kind or another, and to the various, for the people in the regions that came to those mountains, they loved their mountains, you know, and, uh, but at the end of the day, if you take the label off the magazines we used to read in those days, or today off the uh, internet advertisements, if you took all the branding off, they're all beautiful. Blue skies, green trees, white snow. The real differentiator is uh, people and how they're treated how they feel connected to uh, their experience and whether they want to do it again or not. And uh, he really taught all of us that uh, the business of skiing was really about the people and about focusing on them, our guests, our employees, you know, our financial stakeholders, we refer to them as, but uh, they're really our local community, our employees, our guests that had a financial stake in wanting to see that the Money that they put into the mountain turned into capital improvements every year and the experience getting better. And, uh, 
you know, I had a financial background or at least an education in that. And I would talk to Dave about money and he always changed the subject to people. Always, always. Sometimes incredibly angering and frustrating, <laughs> particularly when we weren't doing well and I needed to change something. And it was always, it always came back to people. And, uh, you know, it, the older that I get and the more experienced I supposedly uh, have uh, gained, the more I realize how important that is and really what I don't know and the basis of the knowledge that I'm trying to gain every day and, uh, and inspire our people to focus on is really about the needs of our people and, and how we go about satisfying that. So you worked closely with Dave for several decades. Rusty, talk a little bit about your personal relationship with him. What was he like as a person and how did he influence you? You know, he was an unbelievably uh, giving and uh, calm, laid back California guy who came from Washington, actually, from the not too far off, not too far away from uh, where Crystal Mountain is and Mount Rainier. And uh, but he was also as you would, if you think about it, you know, what he had to be, he was a very tough guy, very tough business person, and uh, just very tough, resilient individual. He was out of the house, fending for himself during the Depression, trying to figure out how to uh, how to get a job. He was a dishwasher when he first came to the Owens Valley on his uh, knucklehead Harley Davidson. Pretty radical back in those days, in the 30s. And uh and then was a fishing and hunting guide. And uh, on the weekends, he uh, he actually <laughs> told me this story about where the uh, capital for the ski industry started in, uh, in the Sierra, in Mammoth. And that was that he would, on the weekends, borrow the uh, city of Los Angeles, actually the Department of Water and Power's truck that he had access to, turn it backwards, point the back end uphill, take the tire off and rig up a rope tow and use the gas from the Department of Water and Power to start the uh, really the first organized ski area in this part of the Sierra. He always reminded me of, of that. And uh, as a result, people that would borrow things from the company, sometimes permanently, uh, <laughs> he, made sure that, he made sure that we were pretty easy on, the, on the, that, kind of, uh, that kind of an issue. That's a pretty funny story. And that reminds me of a quote I saw from Dave, where he was sort of complaining about the quiver of skis that everyone has these days. You, know, you got powder skis, you got different skis for hard pack. And he said, just give me one pair of skis for everything. And I'm curious, how did he react to just watching first, you know, the high speed lifts go up and then all the snow making, and then these mega passes where Mammoth is part of this larger company with 14 other resorts across the world. How did Dave react to this? Did he just sort of accept that this is the way the world goes and it evolves? Or was there a part of him that was always just a little bit, was always nostalgic for the good old days of, you know, rig up a rope toe to the back of the truck? You know, he was, uh, Dave, Dave really was always thinking about the moment, about now, what the opportunities today were. And, uh, and of course, to think about today, you, you know, you need to think about the future and how today impacts that. He almost never looked backwards. And he didn't, he didn't like to be, he wasn't nostalgic. You know, he respected the past, learned from the past. And uh, he always, he said that to me often. He said, you know, respect the past, learn from the past, don't live in the past. And uh, he said, the opportunities are today at this moment. And if you waste this moment, you're missing opportunities. So he was a huge innovator. Uh, and uh, even though not an engineer by training, he was certainly an engineer by genius and mentality, you know, steep slope grooming, uh, winch grooming, that was invented here in Mammoth. 
Uh, a lot of the grooming techniques that we have, things that are, you know, that we take for granted that are on lifts came out of uh, Dave McCoy's head, making things better. He was always thinking about how to be innovative going forward. So that part of things in ski design, in bindings, in, you know, infrastructure on the mountain, he was always very forward thinking about it. But the way... The way we organize the business, even the way that I organize the business, trying to organize it again, the way that he uh, taught me, I guess my, you know, finance background leaked in and, you know, he said, it's, you're making it way too complicated. It's just not that difficult. He said, if you get away from all these meetings and just get down to the work you need to do and plug into that, he said, you'll do a lot better than what you're doing. And he was, he was on me a lot about that and, and on others about really stripping life down to its uh, essence rather than complicating it by, you know, uh, by unneeded levels of sophistication, frankly. And he was just about, you know, really getting down to the work, making things better for our guests and doing that on a, uh, on a daily basis. You know, he was, uh, to me anyway, he really was the sort of the soul of skiing. And uh, Altair is a big company now. You know, we're way over a billion dollars a year in uh, in revenue, and uh, and what thirty thousand employees. And and it's complicated. <laughs> we're uh, we're creating the company and our jobs while we're doing our jobs and running the company. It's very new. And uh, but I remember that about what Dave said, and always look for ways to. Uh, to make things less complicated, more on point. I don't always succeed, but it's uh, it rings in my ear. I can tell you, when I've sat on a, a day long, um, you know, version of today's meetings on Zoom calls two dimensionally, and uh, I can just hear him laughing at me for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know what the recipe is to live to be 104 years old, but that kind of attitude certainly has to help. Um, and that kind of outlook. So did you take over directly from him as CEO of Mammoth Mountain or was there someone in between? For a short period of time, Gary McCoy for about a year or two was uh, was CEO. I was uh, chief administrative officer then, very much a family company. Dave's, uh, Dave's daughter, Candy McCoy, ran June Mountain. And uh, uh, Randy McCoy was our uh, company pilot. Penny McCoy was involved in marketing. So it's very much, very much a family company with all the good and complications that it comes from. And the real boss was Roma, uh, Dave's wife, very smart lady, six kids, you know, countless grandkids. And uh, maybe the, you know, she really was sort of centered in, in many ways around the business. In the, in the early days when Dave had the rope toe that I was explaining before, Dave was sharing skiing with his friends. Roma came out with his fishing creel and collected donations from people riding the lift. And that's where the business started. Without that cash that she created, that she was really in charge of, and this story comes from Dave, uh, there wouldn't have been a, uh, there would have been Dave skiing with his friends, but there wouldn't have been a business. So the company was centered around that in, uh, in very many ways. You know, we, paid a lot of attention to uh, making sure that we had enough money in the bank to get through droughts and, and to take opportunities. And, uh, you know, that, that worked pretty well. So I did, I followed uh, Gary McCoy, who was a close friend and uh, still is. His son, uh, Casey McCoy, is one of the top uh, three or four people in the company and uh, today. And 
you know, there's a long history of McCoys and their involvement in Mammoth Mountain, of course, starting with Dave and Roma. And how involved was Dave after you took over as CEO? Was he more of an advisor or did he still have an official role at the mountain? You know, very quietly, much more than anybody understands. We had lots of phone conversation. He was very much an advisor and always, uh, always available. And he always said the same thing. Just, you know, what do the people want? And it, it, he just brought me back to center during some very complex times. And uh, so he was he was available, but he moved on. You know, it was very hard for him to uh, to actually sell Mammoth. And it was the right thing for him to do for his family, for a host of complex business and uh, and family reasons. And then he went on developing uh, other things. He invented a, uh, you know, a uh, sort of a four track, you know, rough terrain vehicle that was solar powered and was fast as hell. <laughs> and, uh, and he built that and rebuilt it and refined it. You know, he was a uh, he was one of the best motocross riders in the country. He continued riding his motorcycle. He uh, it's not so much that he moved on. He just did what he said. He said, you know, you know, learn from the past, respect the past and live in today. And that's what he did. Different phases of life. Well, I'm sure he's very missed in that community. So back to passes here, Rusty. In 2014, when you were still running Mammoth, the mountain acquired Big Bear and Snow Summit down there in Southern California. And together with June, you dropped them all into the very cleverly named California Pass, which was $689. Why did it make sense to bundle all those mountains together? Well, it's a bit of a microcosm of, uh, of Altera, frankly. And that was that in, there was a couple of things going on. One is that we, Dave, Dave and Roma and their daughter, Penny, who was still a shareholder in Mammoth, sold uh, their interest in Mammoth. And I was Dave's partner by them and had been for a number of years. I effectively sold my interest. And, uh, and then uh, we brought in new partners, uh, most notably uh, Barry Sternlich, Starwood Capital, David Bonderman from uh, Texas Pacific Group. Starwood had a corporate interest in the company that uh, Barry headed up. And uh, they were majority partners. And then uh, David Bonderman from Texas Pacific Group, Jonathan Nelson individually from uh, Providence Equity, and then I were shareholders in the new company. So I sold and bought back at the same time. And uh, so that was in uh, at the beginning of 2006. And, uh, and in some later years, it was time for them to sell. Private equity needs to give the money back to its investors. And, uh, and then that led, to, uh, that led to the third time that I'd been involved in selling the uh, company. And, uh, and leading up to that sale, we realized that, to, uh, that there was a big opportunity to do a roll-up in the industry. Vale and Rob, under Rob Katz had taken, you know, Mike Shirley's uh, discounted pass and the MVP pass that Mammoth had and taken that and applied it across a platform of great ski resorts, grown a huge company out of it. And there was a lot of room to compete with them. And so our idea was to, uh, my idea, I guess, was to uh, buy Big Bear and therefore own a bigger piece of the Southern California marketplace that we thought we, uh, we knew pretty well because of Mammoth. So that provided within an, our network of, uh, of Mammoth and uh, Big Bear Mountain Resorts, right, great alternatives for what we call now the uh, experiential ladder. If you want to learn to ski someplace close to home, you can drive to, go up for the day, 
and uh, and start your experience. You can advance your experience there. You can take a destination trip to Mammoth, stay for two to three days or a whole week. And uh, we thought that was a good opportunity to start growing, expanding the business. Also as a way to create an exit for uh, the for Starwood Capital and our other partners there who had held the company for a long time. And that led to discussions with friends, the Crown family, Mike Kaplan from Aspen, who I'd known for a long time, and, uh, and then particularly with KSL, Eric Resnick, who was a longtime friend. His partner, Mike Shannon, was the head of Vail. And uh, they, too, had aspirations to do a ski industry roll-up, saw the opportunity, and we eventually... Uh, kind of put our companies together and uh, our thoughts together. And that's where uh, Altera Mountain Company came from. And when did the opportunity arise for the CEO job for you, Rusty? And what made you take it? Uh, I didn't view it as an opportunity, actually. <laughs> you know, I'm, uh, you know, despite that knee injury that I told you before the uh, podcast started that I'm recovering from now, I'm uh, yeah, an avid skier, want to ski more, and I'm 67. And and, uh, you know, the busier you get in the ski business, the more it cars into your ski time. And so my intention was to, um, I did invest in the new company, a big investment, you know, for me. Uh, nothing compared to the my very wealthy partners, uh, the Crowns and KSL and the, uh, in the hundreds of millions of dollars that they invested in the business. And uh, so I was an investor and I was on the board and, uh, you know, advising and uh, getting ready to ski a lot. And it became clear that, at least in my partner's minds, not in my mind, that, you know, starting a business of a bunch of existing, well-established ski resorts had a lot of complexity to it that lent itself to industry knowledge, not just, uh, not maybe a broader, more experienced, uh, you know, senior executive that I was co-head of the uh, search committee for. And so we were we had attracted a number of different sort of rock star CEOs that were interested in being head of Altera. And uh, for one reason or another, uh, my partners became convinced that, you know, we needed somebody experienced in the industry, thought I was the right candidate for it. And uh, I listened to that and it took them two months to convince me of it. But, um, but I'm now the CEO and it's been wonderful. I mean, I love the people that I work with. I love the people in the ski industry. It is something that I know about. It's been one heck of a time to uh, to run a ski resort and uh, to, to create one our ski resort company to create a company as big as we've uh, created and to uh, deal with COVID and it's been it's been quite a ride. Not exactly what I would uh, recommend for anybody else in the final uh, gig in their uh, in their business career, but it's been fascinating for me. Well, you're leaving a pretty good legacy, Rusty. I think the company did a pretty good job getting through it. So Altera formed, and that was a combination of IntraWest, Mammoth Four Mountains, Squaw Alpine. You quickly bought Deer Valley, Crystal, and Solitude. But then you had to bring partners on board to really get that scale to compete against the Epic Pass. And there were already some pre-existing relationships because IntraWest was part of that Max Pass with Powder Resorts and Boyne Resorts. But a lot of people were really shocked when that pass dropped. You had Jackson Hole and Alta on there. I think that's when they were like, okay, this is for real. This is an equal to the Epic Pass. The later Taos jumped on, and we saw all of these iconic mountains from around North America jump on. How involved were you in that process, Rusty, of bringing together that initial Icon Pass coalition? How much work was that? Were people in general anxious to get on a competitor pass to Epic, or did it take some convincing, especially for some of these mountains like Jackson Hole, that was always staunchly independent? Well, you know, the uh, 
I mean, that the ski industry has its root in, in wildly idiosyncratic people and uh, their independence and figuring out the ski industry their way. Dave McCoy, you know, Darcy Brown from Aspen. I mean, the, uh, you know, the rugged individuals that had the temerity to think that they could create a place in the middle of winter in some of the most obscure locations in the U.S. that you couldn't get to in the cars of the day and start businesses around that takes pretty independent thinking. And while there's a lot of talk about corporatization and uh, it still takes some level of craziness to be in a business that's complicated enough, and then you add the vagaries and volatility of Mother Nature on top of that and try to create a business that performs on an annual basis, that uh, that takes some... Uh, some dreaming or hallucination, depending on your your uh, point of view, and um, so I think that I think that the uh, bringing all of that together was very much a team effort. I mean, the vision. There's a number of us that had the vision, but really pulling it together, you know, started with the crowns and KSL, and uh, and that thought process was well underway when uh, when the new company was officially formed in uh, August on August first of 2017. And I was there at the time, but I was really an advisor and uh, very involved. And I, it was so interesting, got more involved, more involved. And so there was a number of us that were involved in the acquisition of Deer Valley and then the subsequent acquisitions beyond that, but also to kind of uh, figure out this idea of partnerships. How could we offer, you know, a uh, really a past keys to the kingdom, so to speak, to a variety of kingdoms, to a variety of resorts without regard to who owned them. This sort of uh, comparison, right? Uh, competition and cooperation all at the same time. I think it was uh, somebody, it should have been Einstein, but I think it was <laughs> Gatsby who said, you know, a person that can hold two absolutely counter thoughts and concepts in their hands at the same time and not go crazy that uh, that person was onto something. And it's a little bit that way, right? Bringing the, your biggest competitors, other independent thinkers like Jackson, like Aspen, like, uh, you know, Big Sky and Montana and the people behind those companies together and peacefully coexist with a common product, but in mountains that com competed with one another. That was a, uh, that to some seemed like an unnatural act to me and others, it seemed like part of the soul of skiing. You know, it's about doing business with your friends and skiing with them. And uh, each one of those companies were uh, were owned and operated by friends. And it, it actually has worked out extremely well. And uh, it's, uh, it's created a lot of opportunities at a very uh, reasonable price for our guests to visit a lot of areas that they would have had to uh, negotiate sort of separate deals on. And at the time, four years ago, resorts in general were looking for ways to compete against Vail, to compete with Vail, and, uh, and they were looking for distribution. We all had uh, lots of unused capacity at that time, and the Icon Pass uh, you know, went a long way to help distribute that capacity to audiences that uh, otherwise wouldn't have come, and it's, uh, it's been quite successful. So let's talk about the Icon Pass and how it's gone this year. So I think Altera came up with a really solid pass guarantee in the wake of COVID, allowing unused pass deferrals up until April 11th, which actually was quite a late date. And you had a whole structure in place in the event that a mountain closed. And I believe that the closure of Blue is the only thing that would have triggered that. But that April 11th deadline in particular was extremely generous, 
looking back on it, Rusty, was that the right deadline? You know, honestly, looking back at those days and the scramble to figure out what we needed to do to accommodate people's, you know, fears and uh, desires during the uh, during the pandemic. I mean, my recollection—you've got a much more specific recollection of the dates than I do. But it was such a madhouse trying to make adjustments to changes in regulatory uh, restrictions uh, and requirements in venue by venue. And uh, but you know, in retrospect, it all worked out reasonably well. There was a lot of ruffled feathers, you know, on the days that we uh, that uh, that resorts were closed, both Vale. Mammoth and a number of other resorts in reaction to regulatory requirements. Uh, you know, we inconvenienced a tremendous amount of people. I can't tell you how many people I had calls with, some of whom were friends. I hope they're still friends who were literally just arrived in the resort that we closed down. It was a, uh, it was one heck of an experience. So was April 11th the right date? I don't know, but if you add it all together, it seems to have worked reasonably well uh, during very difficult, you know, impossible circumstances, really. Let's talk about operations a little bit this year. Some of your ski areas elected to use a reservation system and others did not. And some that didn't, like Steamboat, got some negative attention on social media when lines exploded after powder days. Because essentially what was happening, or at least what the social media narrative was, was that Winter Park had reservations, Copper Mountain had parking reservations, and when both of those filled up, your Icon Pass holders would naturally just drive out to Steamboat. Was it the right decision to leave these reservation system decisions up to local resorts rather than having a consistent strategy across the pass or across the company? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it's part of our way of doing business, which is really cultural. And in my case, is really, you know, kind of what I learned from Dave McCoy, actually. And that, you know, that is that, uh, that skiing is uh, and the business of skiing is really local. And it's uh, whoever comes to that resort and whoever's there on that day and the employees in that small community all sort of interacting together and trying to create this great experience. And I think uh, our business model is very, it's very decentralized. Our uh, aspiration is to be one company of many unique brands building a global mountain community. So one company you know, of policies and procedures and risk management and payroll systems and all the back of the house stuff that has nothing to do with culture, but you need to get right. That meaning of one company, but our one company exists to help Deer Valley, Big Bear, Snowshoe, West Virginia, Steamboat become more of what it is, more radically idiosyncratic, edgy in their brands, not to homogenize those brands. And uh, so it is, it would be really against our, you know, our culture to, uh, to make a decision like that corporately. So, and by virtue of, uh, of that philosophy, there was a decision in Crystal because of very unique circumstances uh, and attributes and constraints of Crystal, which is a beautiful drive to the, uh, almost to the base of Rainier, looking at Rainier from a close distance dead in road and uh, and had significant capacity constraints. And given where we were and that we were reacting to the pandemic, um, putting a reservation system in with the significant number of passes in the Northwest, reacting to the fact that Whistler Blackcomb was closed because of the border restriction and that we were going to be overcrowded, uh, way overcrowded, 
we didn't want to just leave that to the customer. We wanted to uh, try to be helpful. And the best tool we could figure out is to, for them, not everybody, not everywhere else, but for Crystal to use a pass reservation system. So we put it in place there. And we also put it in place, as you're aware, in Winter Park. In Winter Park, close front range skiers, a lot of uh, traffic on uh, I-70 and tremendous demand. Um, and so we used it in Winter Park as well. And you know, the, those two resort presidents made that decision. We had a lot of discussions about it. And I backed the uh, local perspective, making the local decision. And uh, I think it was the right thing in, in retrospect for those resorts. Vail required reservations at all of their mountains for every day of the season. And they came out last week and said that they would not use that system next year. Do you anticipate having a reservation system next year for the Icon Pass, either for Altera's own resorts or for partners? You know, it's a it's a very good question. The the answer is that that I believe that the reservation system of the type and the uh, method that we use this year, which keep in mind we invented in about you know three days, <laughs> in response to the pandemic, like everything else we had to do, that reservation system that approach is a construct of the pandemic, and to the extent that the pandemic has turned endemic by next year. And, uh, and not quite the uh, existential uh, reality that it still is. And jury's out on, you know, what's going to happen between now and then with the variants, et cetera. I'm definitely not trying to predict the future. But, it, uh, but that construct uh, of the way we did it this year, past reservation system, that, that really is, uh, that's really pandemic-based. Now, the issue of, you know, how do we best match up capacity in resorts and people coming to the resorts on a given day, on a weekend, on a holiday, on a powder day, um, we, uh, it is a big topic of conversation for us that one of the learnings is how important it is to, as precisely as possible, match up the comfortable capacity, carrying capacity of a resort, whether it's to avoid contagion at the lower capacities that we've been operating at this year, or whether just to make sure that the quality of the experience is something that people want to return again and again to, that the pandemic taught us the importance of that. And, uh, and we're spending a great deal of time right now talking about how we can best manage uh, the capacity, uh, comfortable capacities that are different at each one of our resorts and the products that we sell that lead people to come to the resorts to make sure that we have enough people there to make it profitable, animated, and fun, and not so many people there on busy days that it takes all the fun out of it. And uh, so uh, the, the reservation system that we used in that type of system, that'll go away with the pandemic, but we're working very hard on some uh, innovative approaches to make sure that we match capacity um, with demand that we're creating by the products that we sell at the prices that we sell them for. In a way, you were already doing that, Rusty. When you made a change last year, shuffle access for Jackson Hole and Aspen, taking those off of the base pass and moving them onto a plus pass tier. And that was for this 2020 to 21 season that we're currently in. You've kept that plus pass tier with Aspen and Jackson Hole for this season, for next season, for 21-22. Why did you make that move? You know, it, uh, it was a, those areas were becoming uh, crowded. And there's a lot of base pass holders. And that was a way to, that was an early, you know, kind of version of matching up capacity 
with demand. If you go back to at least when Altera started, there was, again, a lot of Vail had done a great job, and uh, there was a lot of individual resorts focused on competing with Vail and other well-run uh, um, and popular individual resorts and, uh, and trying to figure out how to market that capacity to somebody that would pay for it. And, uh, and the Icon Pass was built around that. And it gave people exactly what they were trying to solve at that time. Other examples of trying to solve that were the Mountain Collective that preceded Icon, right? Uh, the Rocky Mountain Superpass, uh, a number of other versions of the same thing. And we developed a way of, uh, of creating a larger group of partners trying to head, compete with one another, but also to head in the same direction in terms of taking their uh, unused capacity and spreading it out under, over a larger audience. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the challenge today, you know, still exists for some resorts that way. And in other resorts, the challenge is to how do we make sure that we have the right number of people visiting our resorts, not just a bunch of people. And so the, uh, the Base Pass Plus was a construct around that evolving Icon Pass to recognize that we want to make sure it doesn't get too crowded at resorts um, with Icon Pass visitors or Daily Pass visitors. And that continues to be that yin and yang of making sure there's enough people and not too much. That's still very much on our mind as we think about today and uh, planning around the future ahead. There's another example of that in your recent Icon Pass release for 21 to 22. And you moved Crystal Mountain, which you talked about earlier, off of the unlimited tier on the Base Pass. So Base Pass holders now get five days at Crystal. Those days are subject to blackouts. If you want full access to Crystal, you have to buy up to the full Icon Pass. So take us into that decision to change access to Crystal. Listen, it's a, uh, it's a continuation of Dave McCoy's lesson, you know, which is to focus on your people. And uh, if anybody, <laughs> any of your listeners that have run a ski resort in a small town where people go by choice, um, they're very passionate about their local community. And uh, there's not very much that, uh, that people will agree to, frankly, in small towns uh, and in, in ski resorts. It's very hard to come up with one solution that sort of fits all. And uh, so we worked... Uh, we work very hard to figure out exactly, exactly how to do that, and uh, and we need to be willing to break our own paradigm, to uh, to sort of, you know, in a uh, positive way to re to disrupt our own way of doing business. And so there've been we've sold a lot of uh, a lot of passes in the Northwest, Crystal, which is the uh, the only mountain that we own in the region. Um, it's not enough to serve all those people if they decide to show up on a powder day in uh, Crystal. And so we need a way to make sure that, uh, that we deal with that. So going forward, instead of a reservation system, we change the, uh, the product configuration uh, to create a, a more limited approach to the base pass, pass of visitors to, uh, to Crystal. In addition to that, we... I'm not sure it's public yet, so maybe I, I don't think we've announced it. So we, we also intend to, uh, I don't want to get in trouble with my marketing department, <laughs> which I constantly do, by the way, for good reason. Uh, well, if you want to make a big announcement here, Rusty, I am 100% behind that. I was warned not to make big announcements on your show. <laughs> but I need to let people that know about those announcements actually do it. 
But uh, we're also trying to increase capacity for pass holders in the Northwest conveniently, following this experiential, uh, you know, this experiential ladder to have places that are easy drive up local, that are drivable, um, you know, uh, destination like super regional resorts like Mammoth is to Big Bear, and then to have pl- places on the same pass for people to go to once they jump on an airplane and can go anywhere. So we're, uh, we're working to create that in Crystal and then recognizing that we have limited capacity and structuring our products and pricing around the limitations of that capacity to make sure that people have a, uh, um, a good way to access through the products that we sell um, skiing at Crystal. And that when they go there, that they're, uh, they're not completely put off by the crowds. And I think it's working because we've I've received a bunch of letters that say, I hate you for restricting my eye, restricting my icon pass. And I love you for, uh, for <laughs> making sure that my experience is going to be a good one. And uh, so I think that the lesson there is as long as we're, as long as we're uh, not completely upsetting everybody and we're pleasing, you know, at least half of the people, half of the time, uh, we're heading in the right direction, I think. Yeah, well, I do want to point out, Rusty, that you've expanded access at times as well. So for the 2020 to 21 season, you upgraded Stratton and Sugarbush from five days with blackouts on the base pass to unlimited with blackouts on the base pass. So it has gone in the other direction as well. Yeah, that's right. And that's uh, going back to your earlier uh, uh, point, which is accurate, is that, you know, we have we try to take the uh, the controls that we have. And, you know, recognizing, first of all, that Mother Nature owns a place. We just rent it. And, uh, and she decides, you know, how many people are going to show up based on what kind of snow conditions that uh, we have. There's no reservation in the world that can control a powder day, a great powder day. And uh, so we're working to, through the local perspective, to take the Icon products and, you know, the Icon full uh, Icon Base Plus, Icon, uh, you know, Session Pass, and other products that are in the works, and configuring those to work in the local uh, in the local markets for local people, and given the constraints and attributes, the unique constraints and attributes of each one of the local areas. So we think that there is more room for volume in uh, in Vermont, and of course, this year wasn't a great example to test that because the borders were basically closed unless you'd uh, had shots or quarantine for 14 days. So we'll find out, you know, going forward, whether we got that right. And so the whole idea here is to evolve our products, how they work in regional areas uh, and in local areas so that we're providing people really what they're looking for and what they need. And those solutions are different at Winter Park, Crystal, Sugarbush, Stratton, north of the border in Canada. And, uh, we're committed to continue evolving our products so that they meet the current needs, as Dave McCoy would say, the opportunities today that uh, that we need to adapt our products and services to uh, and pricing to uh, to adapt to the ever changing needs of the marketplace. So you just recently released your 2021 to 22 pass suite. And you kept prices pretty much the same. The full icon pass stayed at $999, which is what it debuted at last season. The base pass picked up slightly from $699 last season to $729 this next season. 
Then Vail comes along today and announces a 20% across the board reduction in the prices of all of their Epic Passes. What's your reaction to that move, Rusty? You know, it's a, it's a bold move. Rob Katz is a friend and a very smart person. He's got a very smart group, a very large team of you know data analysts. And I think for them and their somewhat more centralized approach to the business, that I'm sure it makes a lot of sense or they wouldn't have done it. It, from our standpoint, we're very focused on our game plan. That game plan now is to use our products and our willingness to configure those products and, uh, and even understanding how, how much more important it is after going through the pandemic to be agile and willing to disrupt ourselves, to configure those products so that we can maximize the uh, amount of access that we're providing to our resorts and recognize that there are limitations. And we want to make sure that with pricing, our product configurations, and how we do things going forward, that we're able to strive for the sweet spot of uh, the right number of people on the hill to create a great animated experience and not overcrowding the mountains to create those memorable experiences that you can see from Google Earth on the satellite uh, cameras. We'd like to avoid that. You feel that icon passes are still priced correctly? Yeah, we do. We do, and the market sure as heck is going to tell us. And uh, and if they're not, we will uh, we'll change things. Um, I think that's the combination of the quality of the experience and the uh, and the price, and those things are inextricably tied to one another. And we need to have a dynamic look at that uh, on a on a very ongoing, consistent, really daily basis. Early bird icon pass prices are scheduled to increase May 5th. Should we still expect an increase on that date? Yeah, I think so. Uh, based on the, uh, you know, we don't give out specific information, obviously, for competitive reasons, but based on how well received the uh, icon pass is this year and our sales volume, and I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll uh, be, uh, be moving up the price, um, you know, on schedule. So when COVID hit last year, one of Altera's first moves, and really most large ski areas, was to shut down or postpone major capital projects. So you had expansions at Steamboat and Tremblant planned, a pair of six-packs that were going to go in at Mammoth, a bunch of lodge renovations. You have a very ambitious master plan at Steamboat, which adds another gondola to the base area. And of course, the interconnect in the works between Squaw Valley and Alpine Meadows. Uh, You did mention at the Park City Community Leadership Forum the other day, your CapEx budget for 2021 is $200 million. So I'm assuming you're going to go ahead on some projects. When do you plan to release details on these, Rusty? How about your spending plan? And is there anything you can tell us now? Well, I've already told people too much because I wasn't supposed to mention the $200 million. You were <laughs> letting me know slipped out at the uh, at the Park City uh, uh, Leadership Conference with, uh, with Miles that I was uh, on the other day. So uh, do what you can to keep that f- secret from my marketing department who wants to make a real splashy announcement on the specifics. So without confirming or denying <laughs> whether it's the, uh, the 200 million or not, I, I can say uh, commenting on what we did originally was that, you know, we're very people focused, as I said. So we were very focused on, on taking care of our guests taking care of our employees, taking care of our local communities and with safety in mind in the beginning and trying to figure out uh, exactly how best to do that. And that made us decidedly short term with literally no visibility into what it was going to be like. The idea of spending 
what was planned to be two hundred and thirty million dollars uh, the the summer after the pan the summer of what became the pandemic, right um, of uh, two thousand and nineteen, that uh, we became very short term oriented. We wanted to protect our cash in order to take care of our people, protect our cash, um, protect uh, protect our opportunities, protect our local communities. And so we cut back significantly and uh, our outlook go, looking forward is quite optimistic. And uh, so uh, now we can move back to taking care of the interest of those th- same constituencies on a long-term basis and start aggressively investing um, in the uh, transformational capital that people are demanding in our resorts. So getting back to the icon pass for a moment, any potential we'll see new partners for the 2021 to 22 season on the icon pass? Guaranteed. Any regions you can hint at where we may see partners? No, no, I'm very aware of the short leash marketing has me on and that's all I can say about it at this time. (laughs) (laughs) How about new acquisitions, Rusty? Are you still looking to buy new mountains? Uh, we are actually, and uh, by partner, you know, uh, collaborate on various bases. Um, you know, going back to our aspiration, right, of being one company of many unique brands, creating a global mountain community. You know, if you dissect that, uh, this, you know, creating a global mountain community, we're interested in uh, North America, and in Europe, and in uh, and in uh, in Asia. You know, for partner relationships, interested in partner relationships and acquisitions. You know, right now, if you think about where the uh, ski industry is, everybody is dealing with uh, surviving and uh, and uh, making it through COVID. The industry is showing signs that it's done quite well at that. And uh, so nobody's thinking about selling in the middle of all that. We'll see, uh, and we certainly don't wish that uh, upon any of our uh, our friends in the ski industry that they would have to sell. But to the extent that People need to sell or want to sell upon reflection as we come out of the pandemic. Uh, we're certainly ready to entertain uh, that in the areas that are strategically important to us, you know, in North America, but in uh, in other uh, other uh, markets as well. Well, there is one mountain that is unambiguously for sale, and that is the one people are most curious about here in the Northeast, and that is Jay Peak, Vermont, which many people regard as the very best ski area in the entire region. Have you looked at Jay Peak? Are you considering that for an acquisition? We've uh, we visited Jay Peak, talked to the receivers there, did quite a bit of research on it. Um, oh, it's been quite a while ago now, and I think it's a it's a great opportunity. And uh, you know, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't take anything off of the uh, on the table for uh, what we're interested in. So, you know, it's all all things are possible. Uh, we're not actively engaged in any discussions now because, like most in the industry, we're buried with uh, just making sure we can finish out this year in uh, in good safe style. I'm curious, Rusty, if there's an opportunity for Altair out in Pennsylvania. And the reason I ask specifically about this is that one of your parent companies, KSL Capital Partners, owns Camelback under its KSL Resorts arm. That ski area was unfortunately the site of a traumatic chairlift accident earlier this week. Removing chair fell with three people on board. From my understanding, they're all recovering, and I wish them the best with that. Um, but Camelback, if you're not familiar with it, is a pretty good-sized ski area. It's got about 1,000 feet of vert. It's less than two hours from New York City. And it seemed like it would be a good draw on that experiential ladder 
you were referring to earlier, right? So you think about Big Bear being right there by LA. Well, Camelback's about the same distance from New York City. Have you considered a partnership with Camelback for the Icon Pass? It's just weird to me that KSL owns it and it's never come up. You know, we've actually had a lot of discussions about it. And uh, as you're likely aware, KSL uh, purchased Camelback not that long ago. And they're getting their feet on their ground, understanding the opportunity. It's a significant opportunity, Camelback, in the uh, very sort of vertically integrated uh, family destination fund that they provide that includes skiing and the uh, indoor and outdoor water parks and all the other things that they do there. It's, uh, it's quite a successful business. So uh, we've had a lot of discussions of, about it, and uh, we are wishing them the best as well on their lift incident and think that they're well along in uh, making headway of understanding that. And uh, so, uh, you know, I think that, the, that that's a great asset and that there was an opportunity for that to, to be somehow more, uh, more uh, for Altera to be more involved. It would be certainly something that we would uh, entertain and talk about. How about Europe, Rusty? Uh, skiing in Europe is a bit of a mess right now. Most of the ski resorts didn't even open for the season, and a lot of the ones that did were just for locals. So this is a tough time for them. So I don't know to what extent they're even interested in having talks. But you have retained Zermatt as a partner, even through all this. Um, do you still feel good about their commitment to the Icon Pass long term? And are you having any more conversations in Europe right now, or is it just not the time? No, we're, uh, you know, it's it's limited conversations because they're even, you know, they're buried in their own version of the pandemic, right, where Switzerland is open and basically nobody else is. That's a very difficult uh, set of circumstances, but we will come out of this and uh, and there will be opportunity going forward. And uh, we're, you know, we're still uh, talking with our friends in Europe and we have many of those in, uh, in Italy and in France and, uh, and in Austria and Switzerland. So I see opportunities in the future. But again, just like M&A here in North America, you know, this is a time for people to be focusing on their own knittings. And uh, most of us aren't looking that externally at the, at the time being, but, uh, but we're certainly staying in contact with them. We see real opportunities for partnership and potentially for equity uh, stakes going forward. You know, it's interesting, Rusty, that three of your own resorts, Squaw Valley, Mammoth, and Sugarbush, are still to this day on the competing Mountain Collective Pass, which you mentioned earlier. A lot of folks predicted that the Mountain Collective would go away after the Icon debuted, but it just entered its 10th season and it seems to be doing fine. Then there are several partners that you share. This is a pretty tolerant posture on competing passes that we don't really see a lot. What's behind the willingness to share these assets with the Mountain Collective? Dave McCoy. Honestly, you know, the this kind of the, the theme that you started it with, and that is this idea that we're certainly competing with those people, but they're our friends and we have a lot more in common than we do uh, differently. So the idea that we continue to still be involved in the Mountain Collective, you know, that's an important product to a number of our partners for a number of reasons. And while it's not, you know, exactly the strategic sweet spot for Altera, it's something that we uh, stay involved in because it's important to our partners. And, you know, it's not a partnership unless we're going to look at the world through their lens, not just our lens. And uh, so, you know, that maybe on the outside in this kind of doggy dog capitalistic world, and, you know, I'm all for capitalism, but I think that there's huge opportunities for uh, not just competition, but for, uh, for collaboration and uh, cooperation. And I'm proud of the fact that Altera puts its effort where its uh, its mouth is on that side, and 
That means sometimes it makes sense for us to subordinate our sole and specific corporate strategy uh, in the interest of our uh, our partners. That's why we have. I think part of the part of the reason we have as many high quality, you know, uh, partners as we do is because we're uh, we're very open to uh, to those kinds of cooperative relationships. And on the flip side, Mountain Collective has some partners that you don't. They would be very compelling ads. They have Grand Targhee, Sun Peaks, Panorama, Chamonix over in France. Have you spoken to any of them about potentially joining the Icon Pass? Uh, we're talking to everybody all the time about something in skiing. I can't say we're talking about the Icon Pass, but, you know, it's a small, it's part of why I uh, stayed in the group. Because one, number one, it came with a bunch of friends that I probably wouldn't have if, if I didn't, uh, if I wasn't in the ski business. And, uh, we have a lot of reasons to talk to each one of them. Frankly, most of our conversations are about, you know, how do you clean gondola cars? Do you keep the windows open all the time, part of the time? What if it's really cold? We're having those kinds of conversations with people both domestically and internationally. And we'll eventually get back to the uh, the longer term uh, strategic business to conversations, but it's mostly operational right now. Okay. Well, last question for you today, Rusty, and it's not a skiing question. Among many other things that COVID canceled last year was a showdown between my Michigan Wolverines and your Washington Huskies out in Seattle. And I planned for a long time to take my family out there to that game. I guess it just wasn't meant to be. However, the back half of that home and home is still on the schedule for this fall. Will I see you in Ann Arbor on September 11th when the Huskies come to town to play at the big house? Listen, I've been in that stadium. It's too dangerous for an opposition fan to go to that place. I, it's a bunch of crazy Midwesterners there. I'd rather go to a biker bar than uh, than take my uh, take the chance of bodily injury at that place. Listen, I would, I would love to go back and be at that uh, at that game if I can get away from Zoom calls in the pandemic. Uh, you can count me in. All right, great. Well, I'll look for you that day, Rusty. Well, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to speak to me again, especially with everything you have going on. I've been really impressed with Altera's response to the pandemic and the way your company has managed to run its resorts this season and navigate through all this. So congratulations on all that. And I hope next season is back to normal for all of us. Well, listen, if we're in the ski business, it's never going to be normal, but it'll be great going forward. And uh, I look forward to being there with you. It's Rusty Gregory, CEO of Altera Mountain Company. What a great guy. Great interview, too. Thank you so much for that, Rusty. And I really do hope you come to Ann Arbor. We're nice. I promise. It's not Columbus, for God's sake. So, thank you all for listening. What did you think about that? How did you feel about your icon pass after hearing Rusty talk through it? Let me know. The best way to get to me is to subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com and simply reply to an email. You can also follow the storm on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.